Welcome once again, everybody, to Ness Dorma, your chat about 80s and 90s football. And welcome to part two of our long look at Kevin Keegan, England manager. I'm Lee, and joining me again for part two to reflect on this second part is Gary Naylor. Morning, Gary. Morning. I'm saying morning, but you could listen to this whenever. But So just assume I've said evening, morning, afternoon, whatever. And hello to Rob Smythe. Hello, whatever time of day it is. <laughs> uh, we are on... Um, Twitter and Acast and Apple and that we're on Ness and Dorma Pod on Twitter, so at Ness and Dorma Pod, or you can listen to us on Acast or Pocket Casts or anything. To be honest, if you put Ness and Dorma Football Podcast into Google, you'll find it somehow. But most importantly, we are on patreon.com slash Ness and Dorma for those of you who give their support and we're very thankful for the people that do. We've got two tiers of support, five pound a month for those of you who want your name read out on here, and then there's ten pound a month for those who get to your name by that one here, and us to have a go at, say, what kind of 80s and 90s footballer you were. New £5 patrons since we've last been on, and actually over the past couple of, uh, well, the mass number of weeks, really, so sorry we didn't haven't announced it sooner, but here we go. New £5 patrons are Kevin Hay, Barry Kelly, Mark Hinchcliffe, and an old one which we may have read out already, but I can't remember, but I'll read it again because, you know, thank you anyway, is Stephen Gallagher. Um, so thank you very much. That's the new five pound patrons. Thank you for your support. It really makes a difference. Makes a hell of a lot. Means a hell of a lot. And then the ten pound patrons, uh, who get the joy of us guessing what kind of eighties the nineties player are. We've got a couple of those. So thank you very much. First up, we've got Craig Dunphy. Thank you, Craig. In my mind, I've got Craig as a right or central workhorse midfielder for Sunderland in the late eighties. Qualified for Ireland via his dock worker grandparent. Dunphy was called up to a couple of Jack Charlton's early squads, but was dropped uh, and never recalled again after calling Morris Setters a twat in the training ground row. Uh, that's what I've got for Craig Dunphy. Gary, got anything for Craig Dunphy? Well, I think Craig Dunphy was signed as a makeweight in a deal that brought Roy Keane to Forest. After two seasons filling in at right-back, when Keane went to Manchester United, Dunphy went to Bradford City, where, as a converted midfielder, he enjoyed the rare distinction of more red cards than goals. Eight reds, five goals across nine seasons. Now scouts in Ireland under the mistaken understanding that he's Eamon's son. Leverage, I like it. Um, second, we thank thank you very much, Craig. Um, hope they you probably well you can let us know whether that is in any way how you see yourself. As, not as that a, I don't think it is. I don't think it is somehow. No, not that, not that I'm milking the stereotypes there. No. Um, and then second, we've got Carlos Bravo. Thank you, Carlos. Um, Gary, do you want to take Carlos first, and I'll come back. Well, I'm back with the stereotypes. Carlos Bravo was inherited by Alan Sugar at Tottenham, played two games as a sub before being sent on loan to Atalanta, three appearances off the bench, and Pescara, ten games, one goal, one red card. Eventually went to Alavaz on a Bosman and was never heard of again. Sugar still bears the scars. <laughs> Well, I'll I'll take your stereotypes, uh, Gary, and I'll, and I'll turn it up to 11. Um, Carlos Bravo, I've got him. After a troubled period at Roma, Carlos, a talented but under-motivated Brazilian, was signed by Danny Wilson to replace Carboni at Sheffield Wednesday in 1999. His return of six games, zero goals, and at least eight weeks AWOL in the Leeds nightclubs contributed to the Owls' relegation <laughs> in the May of 2000. He often comes up now on those talking head shows about the world's worst 90s footballers where comedians say really unfunny things for 200 quid or whatever they get paid. There you go. Yeah. 
So thank you very much, Craig. Thank you very much, Carlos. So if you want that treatment, and who wouldn't after hearing that, <laughs> by the way, you can sign up to be a £10 patron at nessundorma.com slash... No, sorry. It's patreon.com slash nessundorma. It's far too early in the morning. Okay. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Gary. Thank so you. let's get back to to, Kev, to Joseph Kevin Keegan, England manager, shall we? We left it last time having gone through his, well, it's a very short reign, but we did, what, the first nine months, 12 months or so, um, up to the beginning of Euro 2000. We just finished off with the friendlies before then, which was Argentina and a few others. Um, the introduction of Emil Heskey happened then, of course. Seismic moment in English football. Um, so we're going to talk about Euro 2000. I suppose, shall we talk about the squad that he selected for Euro 2000? Or shall we, has anyone got any early reflections on any bit of anything else before we go into the squad? No, the squad's interesting enough. He left out, um, that, as usual, they had a slightly bigger pool of players. 26, I think it was. He left out, probably the most notable omissions were... Rio Ferdinand and Kira Dyer. <clears throat> uh, Kira Dyer in particular had a really good first season at Newcastle, certainly once Bobby Robson took over and played well when they beat Luxembourg 6 0. Uh, but he didn't get in. Ferdinand didn't get in. I mean, uh, Ferdinand, you kind of, with hindsight, you think, why aren't you taking Ferdinand? He's brilliant. But at that stage, he was still almost um, in John, well, I was going to say John Stone's territory, but in John Stone's territory before this year, um, seen mm. as, you know, had a mistake in him, blah, 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 decision making not great. Clearly, could become a great player, but wasn't yet. So I could sort of understand that. I don't think there are any huge controversies, um, unless I've forgotten any. The youngest, probably the most notable inclusion was Gareth Barry, who was only 19. Gerard was included. He'd only played one cap, played really well against Ukraine just before the squad was announced. Uh, it was a reasonably young squad, actually. <clears throat> Lots of players under, certainly at 25 or under, and then a few old codgers like Ince, Keogh and Adams. Uh, the goalkeepers, oh, Dennis Wise as well. It's an interesting point, isn't it, about Ferdinand in that? Because who would he have replaced? Would it have been yeah, Keogh, exactly. I suppose? You know, yeah, but Keogh, Keogh was a brilliant defender around this time. So the defenders, just looking at it, were Campbell Adams, Keogh and Southgate with backup potentially from Gary Neville. I mean, they're all very good centre-backs. So I don't think it was a huge controversy at all. Uh, I suppose the, the the one thing you might have done, which Hoddle sort of did in '98, was take Ferdinand along for the experience. I've often wondered why they don't do that. Just have like t- two or three non-playing members of the squad, like cricket teams often have people in the dressing room. Twelve well. man, yeah, project yeah, players just they let, call them, you know. Yeah, just let them go along for the whole experience. But I know it might be a bit boring, but and Ferdinand and Dyer, I think, buggered straight off to Ayanapa for a summer entertainment, but <laughs> probably wouldn't do them much harm to actually... I mean, not that it, it mattered, by the time Ferdinand did play in a major tournament, he was almost instantly brilliant. So, But I do think it's quite a good idea to let young players go along for the Sven experience. did it, of course, didn't he? Did he? With Walcott, didn't he? Oh, yeah, but Walcott was officially a member of the squad, you know what I mean? Oh, I see what you mean. Pl- yeah, yeah, yeah. Having yeah, extra yeah. players who can't play, but are just there to for the cracks and giggles. Yeah, have Gaza take them under his wing. <laughs> um, what, what strikes me about the side is that there, that there isn't that much experience up front. You've got a centre-forward uh, who's not in the greatest of form, as we'll discover when it comes to Shearer. The kind of forwards that are available are a, a kind of uh, a 19-year-old Michael Owen, um, or 20-year-old Michael Owen, albeit with 19 caps. And then you've got... Um, 
Nick Barmby, who was an attacking fielder, 13 caps. Heskey, who was just uh, coming on, on big then, and Keegan liked him, seven caps. Kevin Phillips with five caps. Robbie Fowler with 14. So there's not there's not a, a kind else? of bank of goals to call upon there who if the main there? man isn't firing. Well, I mean, that's... The, Andy that Cole got injured, probably, I don't know. There was a bit of a... Andy yeah. Cole was injured, but I'm not sure it had made it anyway. Keegan said Even he would. I mean, he was very clear that he would have done it. I mean, he, Cole, Cole had one of his best seasons for United, but there was always the issue with England, wasn't there? The other one is Sheringham, but sh- who would later get a recall, but he'd hardly played for United in 1999-2000. He went on to be player of the year the following season, but obviously you can't see the future. So it's interesting. I, I think, it's a good point, though, because they did have a lot of riches. It was seen as a big, you know, who, who the hell did you pick? But actually, when you break it down like that, it's interesting to see how few caps they had, apart from yeah. Shearer. Well, it was, it's the kind of all the eggs in one basket, isn't it? In that um, Shearer was such a dominant personality within the, the squad and within the game that that you know he wasn't going to be rotated out or have uh, a rest for a season. So they could try alternative formations up front. I mean, they probably did in friendlies. There's a lot of meaningless friendlies around at that time. But you, you're kind of thinking, you're kind of thinking that that. If there is an injury or you do need a plan B, you want to have a little bit more experience at a major tournament than that. And I, and I know, you know, we ask for continuity. We ask for players who who can have an understanding. You know, the classic Shearer and Sheringham, perhaps at Euro '96, on the one hand, and then we don't want players with sort of uh, ten caps coming into a, a major tournament in the knockout stages, trying to to uh, deliver a deliver a performance so it isn't easy but of course I think that that's one of the differences between international management and club management where you know you do have those options of of FA Cup games League Cup games you do have options around substitutions <clears throat> with 30 minutes to go where where these things are much harder to do at international uh, yes. level but it does look a little light on on kind of experienced firepower off the bench it's- it's probably worth saying that um, the riches that England had up front for the previous Euros had started to dwindle a wee bit. Ferdinand yeah. was past it. Um, Fa- even Fowler, 25 years old, but he was never quite the same player after that cruciate injury. Letizia was over the hill. Liam Wright was over the hill. So it wasn't, you're right. I mean, they, Kevin Phillips and Heskey had come into it. And it it's, it's worth reminding everyone that Phillips won the European Golden Boot, which I think he's still the only English player to do that. But even so, there was a, still a, a kind of no one really knew whether he could do it international level and actually we never found out. So yeah, it's a fair point. I think the biggest problem for Keegan in that sense was, was partly self-inflicted is that Owen's form was so terrible. Now Owen will tell you that it's partly because of Keegan's man management, um, which if, if Owen's account is true, Keegan's man management was astonishingly bad given how much he seemed to... Um, what is Owen's account else. of it, Rob? Well... Well, since you asked, I mean, all kinds of things to the point where, um, like, basically before the Romania game, the third game, Keegan, suddenly at the pre-Romania meeting, he sort of had a 20-minute lecture just on me. Michael, if I was any other, this is in front of the other players, Michael, if I was any other manager, you wouldn't be playing tomorrow. You've not shown enough yet. You've got to improve or we'll have to change. The only reason I'm keeping faith is because I know you can do better. Um, loads of other things he said, like constantly, Fazakali, Derek Fazakali, King's coach, was pulling him up in training over minute things. The weirdest thing, if Owen's account is true, and it makes no sense whatsoever, is that he was trying to turn Owen into a, a kind of a hold-up man and have Shearer on the shoulder, which is just of the last vendor, which is absurd. Um, 
and there's a there's a bit here where he says let me find it which is quite kind of sad given keegan's failings elsewhere let me just find it hang on oh that's right um he said to keegan said to him this is in that meeting again spilling and trying to get him behind defenders is premier league stuff it won't work in international football you've got to hold up the ball up better which is weird given the rest of keegan's game plans seem to be just do what you want, lads, have a run around. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that, and I know we'll get to it, Owen actually we got so pissed off. He said he went on the pitch in the Romania game and his first touch was literally, he was so nervous and kind of low on confidence, he just miscontrolled a routine pass. Keegan immediately had three attackers warming up. And Owen just thought, <laughs> fuck you. And for the, he said for the last half hour of the first half, I just started to play as I wanted. Um, so he went rogue, and interestingly, by going rogue, he scored his only goal in the tournament by playing on the shoulder of the last defender. I mean... This is in Owen's book, you know, you never get Keegan to count, so maybe maybe it's one-eyed, I don't know, but um, it's pretty... It was certainly, at the time, it was kind of well-known that Keegan didn't particularly fancy Owen because he hooked him at half-time against Portugal and so on, which is just weird. It wasn't just Keegan's fault, though, because Owen had had a bad um, season with Liverpool. He, he, he did his hamstring at Leeds, which was the injury that he ultimately kind of blames his decline on he said he was never truly the same player again because it was a really bad hamstring tear but um i mean there's, there's another thing i mean says there's a difference though between knowing you're going to be on the team sheet which he was for all three games and feeling the manager has total faith in you that you're his man keegan's attitude i believe was that Shearer was the number one while i was the best of the bunch chasing the other shirt um so yeah and that's really there strange, might be a little bit it? of go on guys yeah, i was wondering if there was a little bit of kind of tall poppy syndrome in that possibly you know, well, Owen had such a golden time, you know, and, and obviously the Argentina goal and everything everything else and Liverpool and and so on. And he's had a, a poor season. Um he, he might have been told that, you know, you've still got it, you'd still do it and everything. So maybe Keegan going down another route trying to get under his skin to get him to well, bloody well show you. But so, it doesn't sound I, good, does it? No, a lot of people said Poddle had that problem with Beckham and Gascoigne. and whether that's true, mm. who knows. But the odd thing, it's really out of character for Keegan. Yeah, that's what I was For all ask, his yeah. faults, the one thing he was brilliant at was bigging people up and making them feel good. I mean, even Beckham said his great strength was that he liberates you. And he did with pretty much everyone, um, except Owen. I think Owen said he got to the point where I resented him, not as a man, but as a manager. But I can understand, quite a strong I word, really, for it. a 20-year-old. I could understand it if he wasn't going to play him. But it's the fact mm. that he played him and then... St- if that's the true version of events, played him and then still give him all that shit. He was like, well, all right, well, I don't fancy Michael, him, but at least if I'm going to play him, I'm at least, I should at least just tell him he's brilliant all the time like I do with everybody yeah. else. Michael, you're shit, you're starting. Yeah, it's weird, <laughs> isn't it? There's a, it's a Ray Romano routine, I think, where um, he says about uh, going into a certain environment, and when you mentioned Derek Fazakali there, um, it sounds like they were playing nasty cop really nasty combo, <laughs> yeah. you know which isn't yeah. really a good combo is it really what's the thick of it line it's like the Shawshank redemption just with more tunneling through shit and no redemption <laughs> <laughs> well, the, yeah the, the carrot and stick approach I'm going to take the what was it I'm going to take the carrot stick it up his ass followed by the stick followed by the <laughs> carrot you know <laughs> but it's uh, worth stressing that pretty much everyone else talks favorably of um Keegan's man management they're all critical of his tactics pretty much to a man, but no one else. Even players like to like, isn't he? Owen. Yeah. That well, I come think, across. Or, or am I know, mistaken? Yeah, he's slightly slightly awkward, isn't he? So I think he gets far too much stick for pretty much everything. I think I haven't read his book in full, but the bits I've read are really interesting on the psychology of sport. He's very honest, even to the point of his and his selfishness. Like he talked about um 
the goal in 98. He said that evening, obviously, everyone was devastated and got out. And he was, but he was also buzzing inside. He's like an 18-year-old who scored <laughs> yeah, the yeah. And I think that's really... But he's actually... I think he's... I don't know. I think there's more to him than people appreciate. He doesn't always help himself. And obviously, there's all the stuff about Liverpool. But actually, I think he's a really interesting bloke. I, I keep meaning to read both his books because there's every bit of research from them. There's always like a really interesting detail or interesting observation. or And also, he's quite... Maybe he doesn't even... One thing I think is interesting, he's a bit like Hoddle. I'm not entirely sure how much self-awareness there is, but that makes for a really interesting insight into Mm. himself and kind of the human condition generally. I think he's a future player of the pod. I know it's stretching a little into the (laughs) noughties, but I I tend to agree with with you, Rob. There's a kind of caricature of Michael Owen, which he, he, to some extent, he does... Um, play up to or or inevitably plays up to uh, but, but there's also you know an extraordinary story and some complexities there that might repay a bit of digging so well, yeah I what I would say is I've hard. never seen a more exciting England player and I'd include Gascoigne in that Gascoigne would always be my favorite because he kind of touched every part you know whereas Owen there was some, there was always something slightly cold and detached about Owen but I've never seen that's the one time in my life, and even including Rooney, I think, that I thought an English player would become the best in the world um, just around that period at France. I obviously didn't happen for all sorts of reasons, but uh, yeah. I, saw him I think at, what he did at France, it was astonishing. Yeah, I saw him at Goodison in that season before he went to uh, France in 98, and he was just about as quick as anybody I'd ever seen. Uh, yeah. But it was an ele- element of fragility because he was getting roughed up, and of course the crowd were all all over him. And uh, I, th- I think he he reacted at one point with a kind of kick out. I mean, I may be wrong in this, but no, I remember possibly. thinking, you know, that that's either a sign that he's got that bit of devil in them that every uh, player needs, or that he could be wound up. Um, it probably turned into a little bit of both, as it often is. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a compelling. Uh, figure i remember thinking it was so unfair that they had rush and then they had foul and then they got owen so unfair mm. i remember when he played as a holding midfielder at newcastle that's worth <laughs> analysis I I know, like, his career peaked at 21 it's well, it arguably peaked at 18 but it certainly peaked at 21 with the the three cup finals and the ballon d'or and the 5-1 the interesting thing is though that even what throughout his career and even when he was shit the, the bigger the chance the more likely he was to take it like he was so cold. Even at Man United, when he he would miss some embarrassing Didn't score a chances. winner at the um, precise the derby, the derby four yeah. three injury time, just a devastatingly precise clinical finish. And he and there was some. I remember a game at Everton at home when he, he couldn't kick the ball. Honestly, it was that bad. Um, <laughs> but it was just something in him that went cold. You know, World Cup quarter final, Brazil. Never ever doubted that he would finish. He really, I think he's an interesting character and very different to all like he didn't probably didn't have the well, he certainly didn't have the overt charisma of someone like Fowler or Gascoigne or whatever. And that's probably the root of why he's kind of disparaged I, so often. He lives think, about four miles from me. That's yeah. you know, irrelevant. And get him on. Important, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I'll go and see if I, I can get down the lane. Knock, to knock house, him a yeah. knock. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, that coldness is, is part of the part of the issue really because whether yes. he was scoring against a 13 year old he's 13 as Neville Southall once said <laughs> even his own fans didn't like him did they really well and not not in a way no, you're supposed to like a player who does things that he did it was all no, Mike Lowe and but there's a mixed a yeah. there's a mixed story there because if you 
Carragher talks about this a lot because he was close to him, but people don't re- haven't realised until recently how desperate Owen was, like absolutely desperate to go back to Liverpool when he right. left Real Madrid. And the only reason he went to Newcastle was because Newcastle basically, I think they bid like six million more and Madrid said, well, you're not going to Liverpool. So he had no choice, basically. So he ended up, Liverpool f- f- fans thought it was a betrayal, like going to United, but I, I do think it's a bit more complicated. I, 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 I think we've spoken about this before. I kind of bracket him with Paul Ince in that, he had an incredible spell at one club, then went to the other, the biggest rival, and he, he never has one set of fans kind of sticking up for him because of that. He's not associated and owns associated with Liverpool, but he's not a, not in a way Fowler is, for example. Yeah. So I think that that that's part of the problem. But also, yeah, his punditry shifts are interesting because he's he's just slightly awkward and yeah, I don't know, I, but I do find him quite interesting, and I think he's more insightful than people give him credit for. I think it's when he came out and said he'd never watched a film and stuff. People just think he's a bit weird, don't they? I think. Yeah, he's. He, I think he is a bit of an oddball, but you know, I'm not going to slag him off. No, quite. But yeah, says us on a Sunday morning recording this. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, the, um, so um, right. So we let's just go through the squad for the sake of completeness, then we'll move on to the game. So the the the, the squad was the three goalkeepers were David Seaman, Nigel Martin, and the slight surprise of Richard Wright in place of David James. Well, Richard he, Wright, yeah, go on, he had that fast in Malta, hadn't he? They played a friendly in Malta, and I think didn't he give away two penalties and save them both or something like that? Um, but yeah, he was. He had a, he had he a brilliant. Seen, he had a brilliant playoff game for Ipswich as well. Yeah, I mean, he was seen as a a banker as much as you could bank on anyone coming yeah. through. But at that age, it was him and Nicky Weaver, wasn't it, at City, who mm. was seen as the next generation of England goalkeepers. Obviously, didn't quite work out. And then defenders, you got Phil Neville, Gary Neville, <coughs> uh, Aaron Neville. No, that's a joke. Uh, Saul Campbell. <laughs> Tony Adams, Martin Keown, Gareth Southgate, Gareth Barry, as we've already mentioned. Midfielders, David Beckham, Dennis Wise, Paul Ince, Nick Barnby, Paul Scholes, Stephen Gerrard, Steve McManaman. And then up front, as we kind of covered quite a bit, but it was Alan Shearer, Michael Owen, Emil Heskey, Kevin Phillips and Robbie Fowler. And we... Go on, well, just well, no, just one quick thing on that. It's worth saying that the left-backs, Lusseau and Pierce were both injured. I think Pierce mm. was injured. Certainly Lusseau was. Barry was kind of a cover because of that. But actually, Barry and Fowler were the only left-foot players in the squad, I think, um, which became a bit of a problem because they would end up with Neville, Phil Neville playing left-back. Phil Neville had a decent left-foot, but he was right-footed ultimately. Dennis Wise or McManaman on the left, who were both right-footed, or Barnby. So that became a bit of a problem. I'm not sure what the solution was. Like we said last time, he tried players like Steve Guppy, who weren't really good enough. There was talk of Steve Frogger, I think, at one point. Who was having a good season at Coventry, but he never got in the squad. But it became a problem, definitely. They were very unbalanced. The, the saga of England's left-footed uh, <laughs> paucity. I, I even now, um, never mind at the time, because uh, this went on for a decade or so, didn't it? I always, yeah, I, I always felt it had the air of kind of a school team, you know, sort of. All right, lads, who's left-footed? Let's see hands. What? None of you. None of you. Well, who's who's going to play left side then? Who's gonna, you 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 can do it. And, <laughs> you can do it, Wilcox. Why don't they just practice? For oh, he would have been. I think. I think he would have been in the squad, but for injury, I've forgotten that. I Jason think Wilcox. I read that. I think so. I know he was closer in '96, but I'm pretty. Cause he had a half decent season at Leeds when he challenged for the league. I'm pretty sure I might have misremembered this, but I'm pretty sure Keegan said he would have been in the squad. Mm. Yeah, he was always a bit of a Mark Albrighton, wasn't he? He was a good player. I mean, obviously, he's not bloody Ryan Giggs, but it was a good player. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point. I do think though, it was more pronounced at this moment because as well as not having a left midfield, they didn't have a right, left foot left back either. Yeah. So before that, they had Lasso or Pierce. Ashley Cole would come along within 
within a year of Euro 2000, and then that problem would go. Obviously, you still had the left midfield until Joe Cole settled there, albeit a right-footed player. But I think it was more pronounced in this tournament because of that. I mean, I don't want to overestimate or be too harsh on Phil Neville because he did have a left foot, but literally. But um, <laughs> but he, the other problem with Phil Neville is he wasn't quite good enough by this stage. I think he's another, People forget how brilliant he was early on as a teenager. He kept his brother out of FA Cup final team in 96. But by this stage, he'd become a squad player at United and... He just, I don't know, his development had stored. I'm not quite sure why. And he was he was a good player. And Gary will talk, I'm sure, lovingly about what he did at Everton in central midfield in particular. But he wasn't quite up to it. And obviously there was a big moment that cost England mm. at the end. Do you, think the, do you think the Germans, though, said, oh, wir haben niemand uh, uh, they wouldn't have said it like that. No, I don't think they said that. They wouldn't have said it like that, though. But do you think the, the Germans or the French would, would say, "But, but we haven't, we haven't got anyone to play on the left"? I mean, how did we end up like this? But there's a there's a how did we end up like this? Probably story to tell on on sort of every England era uh, that that's ever there's been. We never about... quite seem to have everything. Uh, all well, the dominoes lined up. something about de- development full stock. So remember when, yeah. when when Jack Wilshire came through and everyone was amazed because he could like roll the ball forward with both feet. And everyone was like, <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ, I mean, what have they been doing at, what have been doing at FA development for the past 25 years, you know? I mean, it's got better now. It's definitely has, got it, better. It, it's definitely But I remember better. that being still, still, still at this point with, with the surprise when a small compact lad can use both feet, you yeah. know? Well, there's a, bit funny... in the, there's a bit in the... Um... In the YouTube links we were looking at, with uh, and we'll we'll get to it later when he can get knocked out against Romania, and uh, Lineker uh, throws to Cruyff, and Cruyff says you just haven't got the technical players. It said and technique is nothing more than being able to take a pass and give a pass. But in England, you just do not produce these players, and until you produce these players, you are not going to win anything. And here we are, you know, twenty one years later, and the truth bears out. And the Dutch have won a lot in that time as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I think, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, it was always, this was around the time there was always that ludicrous kind of navel gazing, wasn't there? We haven't got the, I always remember one article around this time, I think it was when Keegan quit, saying English should no longer pick players over the age of 25, yeah. and that included <laughs> Skulls and Beckham. So they were talking about pension. And this, I think this was Richard Williams, who was a brilliant writer. Yeah. But I think it's the first time you come across this, that you think it's really exciting, oh, I want to invest in the future. And by the time you get to the second, third, fourth cycle, you realise it's just a load of bollocks. Well, you know, but what, what I, I would say is, just quickly, to modern listeners, it might, modern listeners, it might sound weird talking about having a left foot player on the left. Of course, in those days, certainly in England, there was no real inverting of wide players at all no. um there was Not some out of necessity Waddle. well exactly yeah but generally yeah that's true but the point is it wasn't normal to have them on both sides playing on their wrong foot as it yeah, were yeah, absolutely. that didn't really come in until oh, god knows when in english football probably another 10 years or so yeah but you know I've, I've mentioned this i think before on previous parts i always think that throughout uh my lifetime watching football when English, especially English journalists, talk about technically gifted players. They mean slow. So you, you get like <laughs> Jorginho at, at, at Chelsea who slows things down because he's technically gifted. Liverpool, I think, have got the problem, which they're beginning to identify now with this Thiago uh, lad in midfield who is technically gifted, but he slows things down. I always think technically gifted players are the ones who can do things faster. Um, so Some of the mid-2000s Makaleli obsession. Well, that ever had to well, find a Makaleli. Yeah, but, 
But also, if we're looking at the present day, and I know this isn't a podcast about the present day, not many people talk about Declan Rice as being technically gifted. But I tell you what, he can take a ball, run 10, 15 yards, and make a forward pass and quicken the game up better than most. So these are the technically gifted players. But we always get it in English football. We've always had it. I remember Alan Hudson uh, from an era before even Ness and Dormer's uh, wheelhouse saying he was technically gifted. Tony Curry, technically gifted. Uh, they, they may have done, they may have looked great on the training ground, but boy, did they slow the game down. Do you know, that's an excellent point. Look at someone like Sadio Mane. No one will ever say he's technically gifted. Mm-hmm. But look at the things he does. At, no, look at the things yeah. he does at high speed. The yeah. improvisation, imagination, manipulating the ball away from... Like, it's brilliant. Even just the goal recently at Crystal Palace, that's technically gifted. Shifting it away with his first touch and then whacking it past the keeper, shifting it away from the defender. When most people would take a touch, like you say, you're gifted players will take a touch first and before you know he scored I, I think that's a really interesting point actually it's it counts more I think for midfield players but it sometimes counts with with defenders as well you know it's the it's the change of pace but the change of pace has to be faster it's not a change of pace to go slower on the other hand people say that you know <laughs> one of the reasons why England have not succeeded and you know maybe there's some examples particularly in the first game that we're going to look at in a moment is that we all, we can only play at 100 miles an hour but oh, um yeah. but I, I I do think it's it's better it's better to be playing at sort of 60 miles an hour with the opportunity of going to 100 miles an hour rather than be playing at 60 miles an hour with the opportunity to go to 30 but miles I, an hour. I think, I think on, the, on the other side of that, though, is that I could see why people became obsessed with that technical at low speed because when, and you'll see this in this tournament and many others, when we had a situation where you had to slow it down and keep the ball to yeah. not lose the game, we were absolutely fucking useless at it. One of my biggest That's... criticisms of Gerard, to be honest, is that he was meant to be a world-class midfielder, but he couldn't seem to actually hold possession in any yeah. meaningful way. You know, it's stuff like that. Sorry, Rob. No, it's, it's an interesting point because this team was actually pretty slow. I think you're right. They were they were they were held to scout, but actually there wasn't a lot of pace in the team. Owen and in attacking positions, that's pretty much it, really. They did. I know what you mean. Portugal in particular, but when they actually quickened it, like the, the the second goal against Portugal, they quickened it. That's what Gary's talking about, actually. A yeah. change of pace, and it's a beautiful goal. But actually, in the certainly in the last two games, Germany remained in they, they were pretty laboured. There wasn't a huge amount of pace either individually or in terms of because you're right, you look at the best English teams around this time, Man United being the main one, and Keane controlled this furious tempo. He used yeah. to hit these kind of sadistically weighted passes into people and just get things moving. And even the United players who were part of that, Beckham Skulls, I think they played at a slower pace for England. Why oh, they did. Know. No, no, they, they, they definitely, uh, they definitely did. Um, but actually, you look at the squad now, and it looks, and you just think, no pace, no left foot, no central, no holding midfielder worth than worth his salt. Mm. You've not got much chance, have you? <laughs> <laughs> so, meanwhile, back at having a chance. <laughs> yeah. Bye, uh, everyone. As we as we, <laughs> we added to the to the tournament. Um, the, the opening game was against Portugal, a game I still vivid. I've watched the highlights again, but I kind of vividly remembered it anyway because it was, well, for all its disappointment at the end, it was quite a, an exciting game, really. Um, who wants to talk about, about about this game? Go on, Rob. <laughs> well, yeah, there's sorry. Um, Portugal were highly fancied golden generation. Mm. Like Figo had become arguably the world's best player, um, and would. Joined Real Madrid that summer. Um, England got off to a belting start. Uh, were two up in about 15 minutes. Beckham 
put one of his big crosses, skulls late run, head, really good head off the underside of the bar. Then the second goal was beautiful, actually. Owen missed the hold up, so Keegan would have loved this. Played in Beckham. He put in a really nice cross in McManaman. And it's nice for Beckham because he looks up, sees McManaman, and it's not just an into an area. Seven McManaman. Portuguese defenders all run to the wrong corner flag. Basically, <laughs> it's incredible when you watch it. And McManaman just sweeps it in on the half volley. And there's a lovely thing of Keegan kind of walks from the bench, looking around all proud. And everything about his ethos really was, it'll be all right in the night. And and after that, you're thinking, fuck me, maybe it will. But actually, <laughs> there was a conflicting voice, quite a powerful one. And we've spoken about this. And we're not hearing this because Beckham said the same. Even at 2-0, I was worried how, about how easy yeah. they were playing through us. And, and as we all um, said that individually, yeah. we thought even at 2-0, they'll do well to get a draw here. It was They were being that ripped apart in midfield. And I've got an image in my head, and I might have imagined it, I don't know whether it was 2-0 or 2-1, of a backpedaling in to, by this stage, is 32 and past it, being attacked by about seven Portuguese <laughs> midfielders, looking around like, what the fuck, like an alien invasion. Um, and slowly England were worn down to the point where, in the end, having been 2-0, they lost fairly comprehensively, even though it was only 3-2. Figo scored pretty soon after McManaman, which I think was important. They didn't have time for the what two. What a hit that kind of... was, by the way. Yeah, no, it's the most overrated goal ever. I'm sorry. <laughs> it takes a huge deflection off Adams. A huge, it's going straight down Seaman's throat. I've had this argument before with people who call me a twat and that's fine, but, <laughs> it's, you know, but it fits the whole story of the captain grabbing by the scruff of the neck, charging at the defence, belting at the top corner, which would be fine. But if you watch it, it stuns off Adams' leg and changes direction completely. So, I'm not having it, sorry. Um, that's fair enough. I've, no, no, that, it's just... Well, it's... A, yeah, maybe I'm just seeing things, but that's my take on it. Um, and Then the second goal, um, it kind of more and more like this hypnotic Portuguese possession, England struggling to keep the ball or to do anything, to be honest. Um, and then there's a really good header from João Pinto, a diving header. It's an excellent goal, actually. It's two all at half-time. And then um, that's when Owen gets hooked and Heskey comes on. Uh, presumably because Keegan thinks he'll keep the ball better while Shearer uses pace to get him behind him. I mean, fuck knows what that's about. Um, but yeah, they just they were just slowly overwhelmed. And by the time Nuno Gomez scored a good goal in the 60th minute, Adams was a little bit, body shape wasn't ideal, but it was a good goal. And England didn't really have a lot. I think there was a Skulls volley that hit one of his own teammates. And there were a couple of chances from set pieces, but they were well beaten, really. One, one thing that always sticks in my mind about this game is one of the Spanish papers, I think it was Marker, saying that Seaman was a piece of meat with eyes, which is an extraordinarily <laughs> cruel quote, particularly because he wasn't fault for any of the goals. And he made a reasonable as as save at 1-0 as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a piece of meat with eyes. Um, that always stays, that's, yeah, so... Somebody once described a rugby player as a bag of organs once. That's what I was but both there were other targets, you know, you could pick them that game. But, so it was a quite strange one through, I think... At the time, now you look back and think, well, actually, everything you want to know about the way the tournament was going to pan out was in that game. But at the time, you think, well, lost 3-2 to a good team. And they were able to, it was able to be kind of rationalised as a great game, you know, a classic. England just came on the wrong end of it. In hindsight, that's not necessarily the case. Um, they were well beaten by, admittedly, a very good side who got to the semis and came when you very close the, to big France. When you watch the game again, in between England's two goals, it's amazing we weren't 2-1 down. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. There's loads of near misses. Every, and... every time Rui Costa got the ball, you're shitting yeah, yourself, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I watched this in the pub at the top of the road, um, which will currently be under snow because we've got quite a bit coming down now. Me having said the metropolis is uh, <laughs> is not so snowy, but um, I, I remember uh, my dad must have been down because I remember turning to him when we went two 0 up and said, "We're still going to lose this, aren't we?" And he said, "Yeah." <laughs> and neither of us were. were Gary, I want a Q and A Q&A special, a Patreon <laughs> special, where we, where we, where you actually tell us the things your dad was wrong about, because there can't be many of them, because he seems to be right about everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, of course, one only remembers those things, but, but, but yes, <laughs> and um, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we looked at, we, we looked at it, and you know that 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 remark that you said rob from beckham's book that at 2-0 and say we're, we're not that kind of fatalistic who don't want to jinx us now by saying we're going to win the problem was is that portugal had 10 better outfield players than the 10 that we had on the pitch they seemed to be superior perhaps excluding defensive organization and you're, you're quite right beckham does uh, look up and and you know, I, I often say that Beckham's skill as a crosser was uh, was largely dependent on the fact that he had four and five yes. Manchester United players in the box. But in this instance, he sees McManaman. They all get, as they say these days, attracted to the ball. And uh, it's an excellent finish from McManaman, who isn't known for his uh, finishing, obviously, but he does well to get into mm. the box there and sweeps it home on the half volley. Beautiful uh, finish. But you st- these players are better. I think it helped that Portugal's kit, uh, and it's often the case of Portugal, is a really fantastic kit with its sort of it's lovely red. Yeah, and and they just looked they just looked a, a better team. But perhaps this is the the kind of scary bit is you have that thing about scoring too early, and England did score two early goals here. So there was no sense in which the the Portuguese sort of became resigned to their feet and you you. Their fate, and you're absolutely right that uh, they scored quickly, which got them back into it. But you kind of, if you score the second goal in the 60th minute, if they don't score in the next 10, then things start getting desperate. But here, you just had the idea that the Portuguese could also see, hang on, lads, we're better than them, and we've got you know a lot of time here to get back into the game. And and sure enough, they they did, but um, you know, it's it. You look at it and you you wonder if there was golden generation and stuff with with Portugal, but you know since that time Portugal have won a, a, a Euros and we haven't, and you wonder if the reason why Portugal have won those Euros and we haven't is is its roots are in that match there when their players were simply better at playing football than our players. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes heart and spirit and a bit of Tony Adams or Terry Butcher's bleeding bandage and everything can overcome that. But I, but if you keep playing those games against better players, you're not going to win. Football's I a simple game, lads. You kick the ball, you head the ball. You can't do any of these things. They can, <laughs> yes. I don't think England had that much heart and spirit in this tournament. I think no, they were a no. bit deflated by, yeah. I don't know, maybe a... a Maybe a, a subconscious sense of King didn't know what he was doing. I was just saying, it's it's worth just. I think that's a good point, though, Rob. Actually, that thing about I think I think everyone deep down knew Keegan does has got a certain flaw in his approach. But I think yeah. if you spend enough time with him at club level, you can forget it enough to get yeah. on with it. And I, and I think that point that he said he struggled with international management, not having enough time with the players, you you don't have enough time to get over the flaws you keep seeing. And I think I that shines think a, through. No, I agree. You know what I, I mean? That, that's when the belief goes. You know. There's a level as well, I think. I think Keegan's way certainly then could have worked 
with club players up to a certain level, even to a level like Newcastle. But when you get to the very highest level, when the pressure's really on, or when you're playing against sophisticated teams like Portugal, it's not necessarily enough. I mean, it just it's worth just in case people have forgotten, which I'm sure they have. Uh, stressing the team, so it was four four two, of course. Uh, see, see, it actually looks really good on paper. Seaman, Gary Neville, Campbell, Adams, Phil Neville, Beckham, Scholes, Ince McManaman, and Owen Shearer. The problem is. Pretty much none of those players, except maybe Skulls and Beckham, were at their peak. I mean, all bar Phil Neville were, and McManaman maybe. Actually, no, not McManaman. All bar Phil Neville were brilliant England players at one point, but a hell of a lot of them were either past it or not quite there, or like Campbell wasn't quite the player become, or filled with self doubt. Even Seaman talks a lot about like he never been filled with as much self doubt as during that tournament. I'm sure hearing about Marcus' headline didn't help. But um <laughs> so it actually looks really good on paper, but the problem is that the spine, Seaman Adams in Shearer, the spine of Euro ninety six, were all a little bit or a long way past their best. Uh, and that was a big even, you know, like Gary Neville who for all by one year of his career, you could just put your house on him basically. But he was having a diabolical period where he basically got the yips he ended up going to see a psychologist for six months he said he basically didn't want to he was scared of getting the ball and so on and he was crap in this tournament um so that that, in that sense keegan was genuinely unlucky but um all the players talk about how basically he treated them as grown-ups off the field which they liked stuff about the card schools they say is overplayed there were more kind of dodgy incidents under Hoddle and Venables. the problem is he treated them like grown-ups on the pitch as well gave them complete freedom and they just needed a little bit more um, they need a little bit more organisation, a bit more of a plan, um, and they didn't get it really. Well, they didn't get it at all. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder, you wonder if some of that is rooted in Keegan's own playing career, which is an Definitely. extraordinary tale of a you know a sort of lad from Scunthorpe who goes to Liverpool um, and then goes to Hamburg and and wins did he win the Ballon d'Or twice and yeah and, yeah and you just and and then becomes a hero at Southampton and carries them to second place I think or oh, he didn't carry them but he was certainly a key player in, in them getting second place in the in the first division and you must wake up every morning and and think you know I'm Kevin Keegan. How has this happened? And you just wonder if, if in the back of his mind, he 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 can't get away from the fact that that the world as a player through his hard work, and nobody is saying that Keegan was lucky. He earned every single accolade and every honour that he he won because he was an absolutely outstanding player who never uh, gave less than a hundred percent, as the cliche has it. But you just wonder if, when he's searching for solutions, the one that comes to mind is be like me and just go out there and win. Because did he ever know anything else? He was like box of the horse in Animal Farm. I will work harder. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's um yeah, and he's I've got we're drifting to kind of legacy here in some ways. But I've got a hell of a lot of time for Keegan in a way because he is as a character the most all of his achievements are perhaps more more surprising because it's him. You wouldn't because he is this simple, and you don't want to be a cliche about this, but he seems this simple patriotic lad from Doncaster who just seemed to want to work hard, and you'd never have him as the guy who went to Germany to play. At that yeah. period of time, you know, you, referring back to Steve Archibald that we covered on the you guys covered on the Arsenal episode, there's something about Archibald that makes him interesting enough to suggest that going to Barcelona and being doing what he did 
was somehow not obvious, but it's not surprising either. And I think with Keegan, there was something like you'd never have him down as the guy who goes abroad in the 70s, you know, in the late 70s. It's incredible, really. Well, you, you, you look at it and you sometimes think, you know, arrogance and confidence are, are kind of two sides of the same coin. And it depends sort of, you know, which which eye you're looking at a particular person uh, with. But Keegan is perhaps one of those rare kind of characters who had tons and tons of confidence certainly when he was playing but no arrogance mm. and whether that combination carries forward into management where it's more about communication than, than the deeds on the field you know I, I, I'm not sure I was certainly struck as I often am when I look at Keegan's interviews about what he'd be like in the age of social media because his disarming honesty his fragility is so on show when you just think that you know the the Adrian Durham's on talk sport and the keyboard warriors would just be ripping into him saying say, you know who have we got this sort of milksop who's in charge of the England team you know we should have Terry Butcher in charge he'd tell them tell them what and everything but it's really um there's a certain kind of pleasure. Maybe it's the, the pleasure's the wrong word. There's a certain, um, you, you look at it and you think the world's a better place if we have men with these kind of puppy dog eyes looking at us and telling us how it is. The trouble is they tend not to win major <laughs> tournaments at football. They tend to be more the kind of Alex Ferguson type who definitely did not have puppy dogs and definitely did not stare down the camera and explain how difficult the job was and, and that uh, things were, were going to be, what's the expression we've got now, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better kind of kind of stuff. And these days it's a million miles away from, from how it would be dealt with in the endless uh, banter fest of 24-7 sports media. It's an interesting Keegan, point because is is he you know is he the most successful manager who showed that much vulnerability so regularly? You know that's what, I don't know. We can't possibly try and think of other people, but I'm starting to think he might be. I always remember he's not on a par with Keegan's management. I always remember doing a Reading game in 2005, and they'd been on a brilliant run, and they'd gone, they'd gone to like three months without a win, and Steve Carpel basically said. I don't know. I don't know why. And I, I found that so refreshing. No, but basically, he's right, isn't he? Essentially, so much of football is down to confidence. So much of life is. And clearly it had gone. But it was just, it reminded me of that William Goldman, nobody knows anything, the quote yeah. about Hollywood. And it was just, I, I, I absolutely love couple, but it was so refreshing for him to be so open and honest and just say, look, I don't know. Um, the, the next season, the only he won one... the league with a record points total, so he clearly was doing plenty <laughs> right. But, um, the, the, only, yeah. the only one I can think of might be someone like Gerard Houllier, who was often sort of very honest and shown a, you know, show, showed a certain fragility. But the, you know, the, the, the kind of puff your chest out bulldog uh, spirit um, deny the reality because if we face the reality, then we know that three teams are going to go down. England haven't won an international tournament in 55 years or whatever. Uh, it's much more common. But it's extraordinary now because it's not that long ago that Keegan was doing these interviews. And you, How? you, you look at them and you think, that's not going to go down well on Twitter. <laughs> How good is it though, in different ways when you get someone who's actually just honest. That interview, it'll be a couple of weeks ago, but the pod comes out, by the time the pod comes out, with James Madison, was just so, after they beat Chelsea, yeah. it was so refreshing. I tell you, I love him so much as a footballer, as a character. 
just it's just so and it's so increasingly rare now but you're right he was talking positively pretty much about everything you couldn't admit vulnerability now because you'd be butchered by cunts on social media yeah, yeah. the hilarious thing is to... is that is that everybody and this is true because the research shows it so it's always be boring different from someone else that everybody in the world in every world of work feels a lot of the time very vulnerable and yet are. nobody wants to recognize it. Nobody wants to address it, live with it or somehow. And in a way, I suppose I admire Keegan for being the leader who showed it that much. But of course, it didn't do him any good. But what well, it did because he was very successful. No. But I suppose now he just gets sort of semi-mocked for I mean, it. I, I think it's a litmus test what you think of Keegan, basically. I used to think he was a loser. I think I said so in the last pod. And I realize now that I was just a twat, basically. <laughs> Keegan, Keegan as a manager was immature. But that word doesn't have to be pejorative. I'm not sure why it's like always pejorative, given well, that, how miserable the a maturity can be, and how, like <laughs> you said, how refreshing those puppy dog eyes were, yeah. and that hope, and that enthusiasm. Like it's a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, it is, and that's why I was struggling for a word because I didn't want to use the word refreshing because that's the one that always gets used. So I came up with kind of pleasurable, but that's the wrong word, and perhaps it's. Perhaps there's something there um, in the English language that we don't actually like this um, fragility. We don't accept it as uh, in our leaders that we don't really have an expression that that covers the the kind of vulnerability and fragility of people who are in authority positions, not who we think should not be in those positions, but people that we believe in and think should be in those positions, and yet are still fragile and vulnerable and perhaps if we recognize that a little better um got away from what's sometimes called toxic masculinity although there are plenty of female leaders who who do the same thing and accepted that the world is full of grays rather than blacks and whites and if you make a decision uh and if your job is making decisions you're inevitably going to get some of those wrong and it's how you respond to how you get those wrong then perhaps uh the the world of football and the world beyond that would be would be a better place because as you say rob we all we all grow up and we're all as as teenagers and young people we all think we're invincible and even though we may uh be self-deprecating in our words in our deeds we all know we're going to live forever um but the older you get um the more you realize that that's not the case and uh you can either sort of fall back or you can say well i'm going to deal with this nuanced world and you know perhaps that's what keegan was trying to do but perhaps football was not ready for that kind of nuance, I, and maybe it is now. I don't know. Certainly, the, is it fuck? Well, well, it is. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, will I say. mean, I, I do say. But the Madison, you've mentioned the Madison interview. There, there is a kind of thirst or a, a kind of groundswell that we do want players to be less media trained. We do want them. No, to, but we only want certain parts. We yeah, only want yes, certain parts true. of their that's honesty. That's true. The positive parts, essentially. Well, I forgot what I was going to say. Then I don't yes. think Keegan did it deliberately. I don't think Keegan, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to change. I think he was just impulsive and impetuous. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. And that's the way. Behind. And you know, there were downsides to that as well. Ultimately, he probably shouldn't have quit in the toilet or in the yeah. shower, whatever it was. But I still admire the fact that he, when he did it, he did it. Didn't hide behind anything. He just said, "Yeah, I'm not good enough." Yeah. Um, and I, there's, I, there's a lot to admire about Keegan. I, I don't want to make it sound like. You know, everything he did was perfect because it really wasn't. He was clearly out of his depth as England manager, albeit there were some mitigating circumstances. But I don't know. I just, yeah, I don't think he could now because it, I just think social media is too, too 
too much of a bully and too powerful, cancel culture, everything else. But he, you he can't risk it. Like, imagine if Boris Johnson came out and said, look, this has been the toughest year of my life. I've done some things right. We've made a lot of mistakes and I'm so sorry. Had we not done this, this would have happened. Yeah. Before you know it, everyone would be calling for him to quit because he's got blood of 50,000 people on his hands. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I can't stand the man. Yeah. But it would you just couldn't. You couldn't. No way. No. Anybody no. wants to hear more about this, because it is a red-hot topic at the moment, have a look at Brené Brown's work. Uh, he's a researcher. Okay. Uh, she does loads of stuff on uh, shame and vulnerability and leadership yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's really interesting stuff, actually. And actually, it's it's really hit, struck a chord with lots of people. Yeah. In the context of football management, I'm trying to think, are there any others like Keegan? But the thing is, you can laugh at you can all say, like you said, Rob, he's not perfect and he, he, he didn't do a brilliant job as England manager. But then again, he didn't do an overly worse job than lots of others either who weren't, weren't like him. Do you know? I mean, so it's... I think if you look back at life in the public eye, as Keegan must now in his retirement, he he brought a lot of joy to a lot of people at, at Liverpool, at Hamburg, at Southampton, and then at Newcastle. And, you know, if sometimes he didn't reach those high expectations, he certainly did as a player. Um, if he if he fell short, at least he, 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 he tried and he did bring joy. And if you're going to, be someone who goes out there to bring joy there's inevitably going to be times when you bring disappointment as well but far better to have tried and fallen that little bit short than not to have tried at all and like mm. you rob um i think i think that there is a bit of a litmus test because you, you can either see keegan as a loser because you know look at it loser quitting the toilet and everything else or you can look in the round and say well actually you know, if you've got 50,000 people um just turning up uh for me to wave at i'm doing something right in my life and the other thing as well is that people yeah. always say sports all about. I've said this before. Sports all about winning, but it can't be because the vast majority of people who love it lose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it can't be, can it? You know, ultimate. And how? Why should you be judged in sport ultimately on only win? I mean, people want to win and would prefer to do it, but if it was so shit not to win, there'd only be about fourteen people watching. Yeah. Every week, you know, no, because most people don't win, do they? Yeah, and it's, 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 Keegan, Keegan tapped into the soul of people a lot more than a lot of other managers. Yeah. Okay, so that that's the first game out of the now way. Now let's get back to big <laughs> shit. <laughs> so speaking of tip, tapping into people's souls, we've got Germany next. And the, the never-ending <laughs> legacy of the English soul when it comes to Germany, I suppose. And, and, our, and England's hugely warped view of what Germans may think of us and how we should think of Germany in a sporting context. Um, which, of course, is the only win of the tournament. Spoiler alert. Um, and the first win over Germany since 1966. Quickly. But yeah, do the team, Rob. So McManaman and Adams were injured. In came Keown for Adams and Dennis Wise on the left of midfield. So that was the first nod to a little bit more midfield caution from Keegan. Um, Wise was kind of a bit, bit, of, bit of both, really. A bit of a left-side midfielder and also he could help Ince out. Um, rest of the team was the same. What do we think of the German team? Again, it doesn't look as shit on paper as it felt at the time. You're just going to read it. Oliver Kahn, Marcus Babel, Jens Novotny, Mehmet Scholl, was it Ulf Kirsten, Lothar Matthäus, Dietmar Harman, Jens Jeremies, Christian Zieger, Sebastian Dias, Lacaster, Janka. doesn't look that terrible, but obviously Matthäus was 147 or however old he was, and there were certain other players out of form. I mean, I think it's generally... They were, they were on a decline from about probably from about 1990, actually, even though they still managed to take in winning Euro 96 at that time. But they have been, they have been declining. Um, and 
yeah, they'd drawn the first game against Romania, one all, but they defended abysmally um, in that game. So it was by German standards, it was a really poor team. Um, they were the weird, weird thing is, I mean, it's not spoiling it, I'm sure, so they go out in the group stage. Then they went out of the group stage Euro 2004 when they were probably even worse. In between that, they lost five runs to England and reached the World Cup final. So it's really hard to know exactly what to make of them. They're kind of often ridiculed as the year of, you know, Yanker and Rink and everyone else who come on in this game. And even like Michael Ballack came off the bench in this game. I know he's only young, but you know, they, they did have some good players. Um, but they I, were but one they paced. Just, they were one pace. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the a really whole game point. was one pace. It was awful. Yeah, yeah it was terrible. Um, what I'd forgotten, actually. So England won one Neil Shearer scored with a really good header from a Beckham free kick. It was really precise. Kind of watched it bounce up and carefully steer. Typically back. adroit header, I heard it I read it described as. Which but it was. True, for, actually. Yeah. for all Shearer's flaws at this stage, you know, his legs are gone. I think a little bit of his spirit had gone, certainly with England, but he could still do that brilliantly. After that, I'd forgotten this, actually, watching highlights. Germany had a blizzard of chances. They had about four in about 10 minutes straight after the goal. All pretty good, all near misses. Um, and then it kind of... England brought Gerard Ferrari in, so there's another... After an hour, so poor, poor, no, gets hooked again. There's another um, example of Keegan being a bit more cautious because Gerard at that stage was kind of... He wasn't quite as... A, he was still very good going forward, but he was also seen as quite defensive as well. So he comes to then there, 4-5-1, pretty much. Um, Gerard famously booted Harmon up in the air. Apparently he said to Harmon actually when he first went on, Harmon was kind of even though they were obviously rivals, Harmon was saying, you know, you'll be okay. And Gerald kept saying, I'm shitting myself. I'm shitting myself. Um, Harmon said, you know, just play HD for Liverpool. Then 10 minutes later, Gerald put him up in the air. Um, or Harmon says, Gerald said Harmon squealed like a girl or something. And Harmon's said he was being smart and drawing the free kick. But anyway, that's by the by. <laughs> um, and the game kind of petered out, a very kind of ugly one nil win, but it was a, an important one because it was England's first one over Germany for in a major tournament since 66. Um, I was living in 66. I was living in Cardiff. <laughs> I was living in, Car- back in, to qualify. I was living in Cardiff at this time, but for these games, I'd come up to North Wales to see my mum. And my, my sister-in-law um, was in a caravan near Rill with a with a uh, scouse husband, funnily enough. And for the Portugal game, I went down to the... We, we were visiting them at this caravan, so I had to sit in this caravan near Rill and watch this game slowly <laughs> fall away from England in the most impressive way ever. And when Nuno Gomez scored the winner, my me, me scout's brother-in-law, apologies, guy, I could do the accent, but he, he said, he went, he went, I can't believe we just lost to a goal scored by the fucking karate kid. Because <laughs> he, <laughs> he looks a bit like Ralph Macchio. And then, and, then, and then the Germany game, I was in the local pub in North Wales, so there was an, uh, an absolute barrage of Welsh, play, Welsh people in there desperately wanting Germany to win. <laughs> um, so and and then when when Shearer scored, I kind of lost all my shit and had that stupid that thing where you you lose all critical faculty when things like this happen as a football fan. Sometimes even somebody who was drifting towards being a bit of a student of football at that time, um, and 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 I, I was finding it hard to be rational about quite how awful they were. <laughs> And it's and it was and it was and then the Romania game comes along and you you, and you know fate smashes a massive six inch nail into your head to prove you know that you need to keep your critical faculties at this time. But yeah, so it was strange that existing in Wales and and, and everything. So that was my experience of it. But I mean, the game was awful, and watching it again, it's and particularly in the there's nothing about it suggesting we were going to pull ourselves 
I'm saying our now. See, I've drifted back there emotionally. There was nothing about CS England going to pull themselves out of this horrendous funk that we found ourselves in. No, and particularly in the context of such an entertaining, open, kind of feel-good tournament, there was some glorious football play. Pretty yeah. much every game was entertaining, apart from apart from that one. And um, <laughs> yeah, what can you do? But Anything it meant that England, Romania had lost one 0 to Portugal. I think it was one 0 just before England kicked off. So that meant. England only would then have to draw against a Romania team who thus far hadn't won a game and were kind of had also been in decline since about 1994 um, and a very old team. So I think despite England being crap, it was back to it'll be all right in the night. Um, and everyone felt kind of caught. It's that classic thing with Keegan. It's kind of heart head thing going on all the time, isn't there? You know, maybe it'll be all right. Maybe there's some kind of master plan in your head saying, yeah, but they're shit. Um, <laughs> Yes. Well, but apparently Keegan, almost... Keegan was so pissed off with the media coverage just quickly that he had told people in the dressing room and that, that if they beat Roma, if they got through, he was going to refuse to talk to the press for the rest of the tournament. That's how pissed off he was about it. Yeah. Um, which again ties into that whole thing, but that's probably a kind of less positive side of his immaturity um, because I don't think any of the criticism was particularly unfair. Um, but you so, know, with yeah. you know, with Keegan, what happens is they they turn up and he said look lads i said i wasn't gonna talk to you but you know you've got jobs to do so have i you know he's i think kind of reneged i'm not it. sure i'm not sure i think i mean i don't know because he won't answer my calls but the um <laughs> everything i've read in his book and a few others suggest he was deadly serious and like, also, it was certain, also, or certainly that it was a, a topic that was discussed a lot anyway it wasn't also, just ev- evidence of keegan's career suggests that once he's made his mind up he's made his mind up that's well, a good is, point actually there is that there's never he never saw a microphone he didn't talk into, did he? Um, you know, uh, so the, it probably the evidence points both ways. I was going to say that that the kind of Shakespearean character that Keegan was in some ways, you you almost need the second act to set up the third act, don't you? And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sure yeah. enough, the second act turned up and and hope just flickered there before it was extinguished on the. Uh, uh, on the heel of uh, uh, a Romanian side missing its uh, missing its conductor. Do you know that's uh, a really good point? That's a really good point. Not just the second act of winning a game to kind of restore mm. their position in the group, but also it being a, a historic win over Germany, albeit a bad, a terrible game. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. So we can here then, and um, as you said, Rob, England needed a draw to uh, progress. And yeah, a draw the, did not turn up. No, we'll go through the team again. Um, so Seaman pulled out injured at the last minute, really late in the day. Um, but I think he could said to him, look, basically, I'll leave it up to you. And Seaman said, look, I'm, I'm not right. He tried. I think some, he got injured in the warm-up. Something. Some people Martin, at this point were suggesting Martin was a better option than Yes, Seaman, that's right. And, yeah. and they were soon disabused. That <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> David Seaman, so Nigel Martin, who was an excellent goalkeeper at club level, don't get me wrong. And it's quite really sad. Was, that yeah. his one, the, if you ask people to name one thing about his England career, it would be this game. Yeah. Um, rest of the and he, was, he was, was a good club keeper. You know, no, he was excellent. Tony, he tell was. You that. Yeah, he was really good. Um, the rest of the team was unchanged. I think Adams was still injured. McManaman was still injured. I think Gerald would have played, but he got injured. I, f- I forget exactly how. I suspect he'd have started maybe ahead of Wise, maybe even ahead of Owen. I don't know. But anyway, so it was back to usual 4-4-2. Um, and Romania, as Gary said, without Hadji. Was he injured or suspended? I think he was injured. Um, but from the start, I mean, England were in an awkward position of only needing a draw, which is never ideal. So they didn't know whether to stick or twist. Romania knew exactly what to do, and they 
pretty much dominated the game from the start. Gary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, there was, I mean, is it wrong to say inevitability about it? Um, certainly when England progressed in 2018 to the semi-finals, I was walking around saying, God, we're in the semi-finals, we're in the semi-finals. So maybe even 18 years previously when England had a chance to to, to go on, um, you look at it and you think we're up against Romania in, in some ways that are a kind of middle footballing power. They were then in the same way that, that England were um, not likely and not with a history of winning international tournaments, but the kind of tricky opponent that, that England have found ways of failing to beat, you know, Poland, uh, 1773 and, and so on, spring to mind. But and, and don't forget Romania beat them at France in 98, yeah. which yeah. was and, quite important. And they just, again, they just looked like they had an edge all over the field. They looked cleverer players. They they were quicker on the ball, and they were certainly quicker in their, in their passing. And England just didn't look good enough and um you know i mean you scores in the first match one in the second two in the third how many times are you going to play in the group stages of a knockout tournament and score two one and two goals and go out well not very often so uh we started off saying that the squad looked a bit light on experience up front but the goals went in and we looked pretty solid at the back so solid that rio ferdinand in his uh john stone's period rather, rather like picasso in his blue period uh, couldn't get into the uh into the side and yet you you, you look at it and you think well if you're going to concede three against portugal and three against Romania how are you going to progress um so it, it it's really hard to get that that read on it uh for me other than the fact that that if you look apart if you take the Germany game away and you look at the 10 outfield players in particular although obviously Martin plays an important role in the Romania game uh where you can see 10 against 10 um if you're picking the the kind of best 11s in that strange way that, that people do how many England players would have got in ahead of the Portuguese players how many would have got in ahead of the Romania players well I'd suggest not that many and if you're trying to win one-off matches against teams who have better players uh, as I said earlier on there's only so much that kind of motivation and and a run of form and confidence there's only so many places it can take you I'm... and uh, ultimately class will out which is one of the reasons why I think, anyway, and I know we've had discussions about this, of all the World Cups and European Championships, the best team do tend to win. There are some unlucky losers, one thinks of the Dutch in 74, and to, although I think that's doubtful, certainly in 78, perhaps. But um, not many, really. I'm not sure they necessarily, certainly Romania, have better players. I think they just have players playing better. I think well, England yeah, could be definitely so, yeah. underperformed, given the individual quality of players, albeit some of them were past it and we spoke about others like Gary Neville and Owen yeah it's worth talking about what happens a Christian Romania had a couple of really young players Christian Kivu and Adrian Mutu we come to know Kivu scored with a pretty sure it was a miss hit cross or was it a deflected cross in the 22nd yeah. minute fully deserved Romania would be much the better team England looked a bit kind of one pace as you said and a bit clueless then from nowhere a few minutes before half time it went on a kind of Retro surge into the area was brought down. It was a really good run. Shearer scored emphatically as as he generally did until he had a dodgy spell a bit later in his career. I think from penalties, 
And then Owen, who had apparently decided to, well, internally had told King to bugger off and was doing his own thing, he got behind the defence, poked the ball past the keeper just on half time. It was quite a cute ball from Skulls. And despite being comprehensively outplayed, England were 2 1 up and therefore had a two goal cushion because the draw was fine. Um, as with the Portugal game, the two goal cushion didn't last long enough. This time it was broken by half time. But straight after half time, a, a loose punch from Martin. Went to Montiano, chested it down and belted it. He played really well all game. Yeah, he's a good player. Beautiful beautiful left foot. Uh, So then you're into the classic kind of, oh shit, man. 40 40 minutes, 45 minutes to hang on. Um, And Keegan did his usual thing by now of trying to show he was a bit more tactically aware by making changes. Heskey Ferrarian was obviously his default after 67 minutes. Barnby for Wise. Then a big one with 10 minutes to go, Southgate for Skulls. So Southgate went into central midfield, which will become a talking point later on. Um, And actually, even though Romania had all the ball and England didn't particularly like scoring again, they were doing okay until the 89th minute, I think it was, when poor Phil Neville made a a horrific tackle on um, Muntianu. Not Muntianu, I think it was Moldovan, the guy who'd scored. It was Moldovan, yeah. On that penalty, um, obviously, I mean, all the talk afterwards among the, you know, Keegan getting a, a pelt in for failing. The latest character assassination of an England player was Phil Neville, wasn't it? For the for, for the completely unnecessary tackle, in inverted commas. I'm doing the inverted commas fingers as I'm talking. What's the view on that? Well, my my view really is, is looking back at it at 20 years distance or, or whatever, um, there's almost this kind of plaintive moment where Neville realises what he's done. And his face always had quite a long way to fall, but it falls a whole distance. <laughs> and um, It's horrible, kind isn't of, it? He's pointing he at, at the ball. ball. Yeah, yeah, and he and knows. It, he knows. I, I, I got, I, I got a piece of, I got a piece of the ball. And not one of his teammates we know is looking at him. They've all turned <laughs> away. There's Romanians shouting and, and screaming, and the crowd. You can probably only hear the England supporters in the crowd. There won't have been many Romanians uh, there, so we can imagine what uh, what the uh, gamut of uh, insults coming his his ways, and the number of f and C's which will be uh, assailing his ears and he's still a relatively young man at this point and you, you know you, you, you kind of think he's he's going he back 22 to 22 at this point yeah is his yeah about that 22 23 He's he's thinking about his his days as a cricketer, and he could have uh, <laughs> played for Lancashire. He's thinking about all that he's won in the in the slightly post golden generation, not quite class of ninety two at Manchester United. And he's probably you know sort of thinking of those and thinking, here's the karma now. I've had all of that given to me, and here it is uh, being taken away by a referee's whistle and an ill judged and absolutely and i'm gonna say the word stone cold (laughs) no not stone wall stone cold penalty um but uh but yeah i I mean to 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 his credit he 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 built his his career back but um in terms of of uh being in an england shirt that was uh that was san marino uh first seven second stuff wasn't it it really was shocker (laughs) and um yeah, the penalty was scored by, um, was it Ianel Ganea? Was that right? Yeah, he was a sub, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Johan Ganea, yeah. Very, very coolly. And I always remember after that, Keegan did that thing, bless him, of, you know, like you lift your hands, like, come on, get your, get yourselves up. And, and <laughs> yeah. there's one minute to go. And <laughs> behind him, yeah. we behind lift from here, lads, yeah. 
behind you had Skulls, Owen and Fowler when England needed a goal. And it's a bit <laughs> harsh because there were reasons for taking off Skulls, you know, bring on Southgate, protect what you have. But it just felt quite symbolic. Um, the Neville thing is interesting. I mean, he had it nowhere near as bad as Beckham, but it was still pretty bad. I mean, one day his wife came home to find their gates on fire with an England flag, flag on top of them and stuff like that. Um, went out for a meal with his wife, went to the loo and someone said he was going to punch his lights out so they had to go home and shit like that. It was nowhere near as bad, but we were, we were getting to the phase. Started it was nowhere Beckham near away. as high profile as Beckham though, was no, it? No, it wasn't. And it, I think even I think it helped. The, the players around were very good. I mean, as it happened with Beckham actually, but like, even his brother said to him, they said, don't lose a moment's sleep. We were shit. We were, yeah. if, we, if we hadn't lost today, we were going to get stuffed by Italy in the quarters. Um, but it, we, we were starting to phase where somebody had to suffer for England going out. So it was Beckham, then it was... Neville, less so 2002, 2004 it was a referee, 2006 it was Ronaldo, and so on and so on. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah it, but... It, it was, you were beginning to get to that kind of where the entitlement that fans always have and had, but it was becoming more public, and, and if you like, the entitled began to feel entitled uh, and to, to be able to, you know, say, uh, you know, it, 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 it's this footballer who's played the game at a higher level than I will ever play uh, that that uh, that has, has won all this stuff and yet it's him who's the problem uh, yes. and him and, and and you know I mean that's a perfectly reasonable position uh, to take in some ways that you're selected to be excellent and if you fall short of excellence you should attract criticism but the disparity and the venom and the ego required by the entitled to shove the finger in the face thousands and thousands of them um, online these days but it was the start of that kind of thing I and think it Criticism is fine, but that kind of stuff is just... I think it helped Phil Neville that the media didn't really do a lot. Um, Unlike Beckham, unlike in 2004 when they printed, was it Urs Meyer, the referee's email, his phone number, whatever. I think there was an acceptance, whether it was conscious or unconscious, that England was shit and deserved to go out. And therefore there was no point. Whereas in 98, there was still, you know, there was still, I think in the media that is, and it was the same really in 2010 when there was a huge injustice up to a point with the ghost goal, but no one made a huge deal of it because they knew deep down England were just outplayed. Other times, 98, 02 is another one because even though they went out to 10, they were just so well beaten by the 10 men of Brazil, there was almost no point complaining about anything anyway. They'd done well to get that far. Whereas in 98, 04 and 06, I think there was an expectation of more and entitlement. And that's why the people involved were pilloried i mean neville still got it at ground and it, we were in that whole era of the nevilles can play for england so can i and all that yeah. stuff so he still got it there but i think it really helped that the media didn't go to town on him and also i bet nigel <laughs> nigel Martin was relieved because it took a break i mean he's his one you know ultimately it was still too old when he made that mistake and it wasn't a, a rank howler he just didn't clear his lines with a punch but um that didn't help I, I feel sorry for him though because as you said he was a really really good club keeper and I think he played about 15 times for England, maybe, but I think that's all anyone remembers. Yeah. Um, and that's that's harsh. But as you said, there's in, in David <laughs> Made Lace, a couple of good saves in the game as well, which I've forgotten. In David Lacey's report, he kind of sums it up as he often does, really. He says, um, you know, he said, for long periods of this match, and especially in that second half, they wore, England wore an air of desperation as Romania's superior passing and movement swept through their midfield as though Keegan's men were not there. Indeed, this was often the case. Yeah, you can have a go at, you know, one 
poor decision by a defender at the end. But when you've spent the entire second half with no midfield, it's a, it's that's not the problem, is you know the, the 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 tackle is not the problem, is it? As you've said, Gary. Yeah. Well, David Lacey's reports, um, obviously, you know, I, I read them, Rob very kindly uh, sent us links uh, to them. And it was just a, a reminder of a different kind of journalism, journalism as a, a kind of mini essay on on a match. It's so wonderfully relaxed, it's so wonderfully well judged. And Rob, you know, you, you're, you're a big fan of his. Do you want to kind of pull out some of, of that school of journalism, which is really, I think, the main inheritor these days is is Paul Edwards uh, writing about county cricket at uh, Crick Info. But there are so few of these writers allowed, I think, these days. You'll probably find some online, but certainly not writing for the big name outlets. I don't think it's that they're not allowed. I think it's just that it's changed. Journalism yeah. has become a lot more ego-driven um, for all of us, sadly. But, all, yeah, Lacey's Lacey just a master. I could just read him on anything. It's just a pleasure. There's so... The, the kind of lightness of everything is so good. He's laugh out loud, funny, but in a dry way. His judgment is almost always spot on. He's fair. Um, most of all, there's kind of wit and originality of thought and of writing. Um, and it's just so light, you know. It just it, it, ultimately, it's so much harder to make something look simple when it's sophisticated the other way around. I think a lot of people now are trying to dress things up rather than lace to dresses right down the way. I mean, even just one line I came across a few weeks ago for a, another podcast about old Man United games is when they played at Norwich and they were holding onto a lead and Brian Robson came on. By this stage, he's like 36 and just started putting people up in the air, basically. And Lacey wrote, Brian Robson wandered onto the pitch like a battered old bull mastiff who wandered into Crufts, which I thought was just a... <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant line. It just summed it up so well. Um, yeah, I can't recommend enough. If you want to see a true master of football writing, just put David Lacey, Guardian, into Google and just read anything. Yeah, he's so he's just he's, he's just gloriously good. And actually, some, the other thing is sometimes when you write and you read people who are clearly better than you'll ever be, it can be quite dispiriting. You think, oh, fuck that, I'm not reading. Whereas Lacey, it just... <laughs> There's just something really uplifting about how brilliant it is. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's so accessible. Not that you think you can ever do it that well, but maybe just because, I don't know, maybe that's why it's so enjoyable to read. Um, but yeah, I just think he's... It's like Billy Connolly for comedians, isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, it's, exactly. It's like, it's like reading Matthew Engel or Gideon Haig these days on, on cricket, Matthew Engel in the in the 90s. You you kind of, if, if one of the things you do is say that I'm going to write about uh, cricket, uh, there's only so much of Engel and Haig you can read before you think, maybe I'm going to do something different with <laughs> yeah. my time. So Engel's brilliant good. on everything. Yeah, yes. oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, Indeed. so... Uh, rather less brilliant on everything was uh, was uh, England um, at at this match, and then the slide towards the uh, the uh, denouement in the uh, in the toilets at Wembley. Well, I would say this is probably English football's a national team, the biggest funk for a hell of a long time. I'd say I'd say possibly even more than the Taylor years. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's because it came on the back of all the. I don't know, but then Taylor came on the back of Italian 90, but it feels like this was a bigger funk, you know. Um, certainly, I don't think there's been one as bad since. Um, but yeah, they so basically, it's worth. it didn't last long after that. They played really well in a friendly, drew away to France, won all. Um, I mean, came on a sub this time, scored a really good goal. And then everyone was excited about playing Germany at home in the first World Cup qualifier, last game at the old Wembley. 
And Jesus Christ, what a day. Oh, well, this, this, it was pissing down, wasn't it? I think it was oh, great. Brilliant. Yeah, which is yeah, hard. It was biblical. And the um, the Southgate decision, which is the big thing. Gareth Southgate plays in midfield, doesn't he, in this game? Yeah, I've got... I've got go on. Well, one, he had played midfield at Palace relatively yes, exactly. regularly. It wasn't like a completely stupid decision. But on the flip side of it, anybody... I don't know if you have, Gary, but you know, people who play uh, championship manager as it was then... I think the thing, what, what, what was so surprising to me for me, I looked at it, I thought, that's like a, champ, a decision I would make in championship manager. I'll take a player who can play midfield, who's not played for ages, because it makes sense looking at what I'm playing against. But then again, I'm not an elite level manager. Do you I know th- what I mean? I think, yeah, but the problem, the bigger problem is Germany were playing 3 4 1 2 with Mehmet Scholl in the hole. So it made sense to put Southgate on Scholl, who was a very good player, by far the most creative player. The problem is the team got leaked. And then Germany switched and just played a different system. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten that bit. Yeah. So South, so they end up playing. I think it was. Three, I think they went to three five one one. Maybe I'm not sure. But anyway, they switched it. And it ended up. It ended up becoming a problem. Um, and for the first half, Keegan, to his credit, changed at half time and went to a back three himself. But by then, Harmon had scored that goal and skidded off the turf and Seaman pushed it into the net. I mean, it was sort of half mistake. But the whole thing was a bit of shambles. There was no real wall and anything. Um, but I think it, what I find really—I I don't think Southgate midfield was a particularly bad decision, particularly at show because ultimately it's not like he was leaving out—I don't know—even Jordan Henderson. Never mind peak Paul Ince. He was leaving out a past it Paul Ince. Um, the problem they have—the thing I think is really cruel about it—is that this was Keegan trying to show he could be tactically sophisticated, and ultimately. If you talk about one thing about him in time in charge, people say that he put Southgate midfield, and I think there's something incredibly cruel about that. Don't get me wrong; I think you're, I think there was an element of Championship manager about it. You know, there's more to tactical sophistication and just putting someone in a position. Yes, um, but I do think it was really that was really cruel. The, the issue is, should he then have changed the team earlier? I mean, halftime is still pretty early to change. The problem is by then the mood had soured, the team was already low on confidence, and it plummeted so i do think i just think there's something incredibly almost tragic about him showing like i can do this i can be the sophisticated manager you want and he gets stitched up a by one of his own players or whoever leaked it and then basically by the way the game panned out yeah i i had a conversation we mentioned james madison earlier and jesper said to me when we were watching the leicester game um he said why why don't why don't teams put someone on Madison and just man-mark him. And I said, well, you know, the, the kind of problem when you change your team in order to deal with one opponent is that if that man-marker gets beaten by what is obviously, you know, they're playing number 10 because they're a skilled player, then the game is broken open. And this is, of course, what Leeds are finding at the moment with their press is that once you do beat a man, the 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 game is 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 wide open, and secondly, especially these days, you know, Gentile can mark Maradona and what make twenty seven fouls. It was Gentile, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Maradona. Um, <laughs> but now, if you make two, make one bad or cynical foul, you're on a yellow. But even if you make three or four, you know, you're going to have the referee pointing around the field saying, you know, uh, here's your yellow for persistent fouling. So. I, I I I kind of understand uh, that where you, you you know you shape your team to meet the opposition shape, but I think it fails more often than it succeeds, and you know there are, there are obvious kind of reasons for that. But I re- I remember I, I remember I didn't I I kind of felt a sense of 
justification, if you like, at that match. Because I, I didn't like all the nostalgia about the last game at Wembley because Wembley was a horrible ground to go to if you were a fan. Um, there was the walk-up Olympic Way uh, and the Twin Towers. And then that was kind of it, because once you were inside, it was a horrible stadium to watch football. You were too far from the pitch. Um, the the facilities were shocking. Uh, the uh, It was almost always too crowded on the terraces, or always seemed to me to be uncomfortably crowded. Of course, there were capacity crowds. We always felt there was a bit more than that. Um, but I had no love for the old Wembley, and somehow... To see it going out in this kind of shower, uh, both in terms of the match and in terms of the uh, meteorological conditions, felt to me to be a kind of send-off that, that, that the old Wembley with its sepia-tinted nostalgia required. Now, I've seen Everton win and lose at Wembley, so it's not just the... Um, it's not just uh, me. Uh, I've seen England win at Wembley. It's not just me sort of uh, projecting my own uh, disappointment onto it. It was horrible. I don't much care for the new Wembley, but at least it feels 20th century or 21st century. The old Wembley felt 19th century for all of it being built for the Empire Games, I think, in, in whatever it was in 2020. 1920s it felt older than that it felt shabby and somehow England's shabby performance sort of matched the, the stadium for me I think I may be you know out on a limb on that or, or in a minority but uh, I'm not sure but you are actually it was horrible it's still horrible now it's in a shit place there's nothing yeah, it's in an industrial estate it's just crap yeah um, just quickly on the German formation I just checked yeah, they did go to 3-5-1-1 so of course what that meant is England were totally overwhelmed in midfield because Germany again <laughs> Four central midfielders to England's two. Um, so Keegan, as I say, did change at half time. He brought Dyer on and went to a back three with wing backs, but by then it was too late. Well, the, the, the thing we spoke about this before, but I think Keegan knew before the end of the game he was going to quit. But I think what confirmed it was the, the sheer level of the vitriol as he walked away, pissing down rain, like really vicious criticism. And He's the contrast quite a naive character day, in some ways, oh, isn't he? Totally, yeah. I think he probably uh, the, thought that'll never happen somehow. And yeah, when it totally. did, it was just too crushing for it him. It hurts him, him too much. Yeah, yeah I agree. Because he's such a dreamer. And you got the contrast, as you said in the first pub, with him walking out on that beautiful spring day, looking up in awe, you know, trying to breathe it all in at the crowd. Everyone loved him. The contrast is so severe within 18 months. He was never going to... I mean, Keegan, yeah, no, I think it hurt, particularly because Keegan was so invested in the fans, more than most managers. Um, he talked about them a load, and like they were his kind of inspiration, really. And for them to turn him to that extent, I think that that's ultimately what killed him. The players didn't want him to go, I don't think, did they? Or no, Adams and Beckham. Beckham was in tears, apparently, in the dressing room. Adams tried to talk him out of it. But uh, as you said before, Keegan was never for turning. I think they all really liked him as a bloke apart. Well, I think even Owen actually didn't think bad of him as a bloke, just thought he was a terrible manager. Um, but all of them, terrible man manager, sorry, but all of them knew there were tactical limitations. Um and it was just the whole thing was in a funk, wasn't it, really? There, there, were, yeah. there were players who were past it and not quite at it, but there were also players who were simultaneously playing brilliantly for their clubs and just not performing for England. There was just that level of kind of, kind of just a slight despair. Um, so it was right, probably, that came to them when it did, and the way he did was so typical Keegan, for good and bad. Um, gave, caught, res yeah. Resigned in the toilet, gave that interview, which you can find online, where he just said, basically, I'm not good enough. Um, I mean, he. The one thing is, I think he. I think he didn't. He say the fans have got me into the job, and the fans have put me out. But he was sort of a bit scattergun in his 
interviews saying, oh, I can't motivate the players. And then he goes on to the fans. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think it stopped motivating the players particularly. Uh, you said it, I think they still like it. I think the fans are the big one. But but what he did do, and what very few senior figures in any walk of life, as Gary said, do is just say, yeah, I wasn't good enough. And, and I think it's... I think it's just credit for that. Yeah, and also yeah. the kind of, you know, well, why did he do it then? And, and, and all that. And, and but, but the problem is, if somebody... When you say to somebody, well, what are you packing in for? And you say, I don't think I'm good enough to do the job and I don't want to feel like this anymore. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's the most reasonable thing for any person to do in any but walk of life, really, isn't that it? Way. And it certainly wasn't 20 years ago. One, oh, one God, thing no. that he was criticised no, no. for was walking, because they had a second game three days later and four days later in Finland. So I get a little bit the criticism of him. Why couldn't he have yeah, just held on for that? Yeah. But that's to misunderstand who Keegan is certainly, and also I think it's a bit harsh. I mean, I I have the same kind of impetus as Keegan, and I don't like it, and I wish I didn't. But I do know what it's like to feel that way, and it's fucking miserable either mm. way because you feel guilt and regret and a bit of shame and frustration and sadness, and all you want to do is just draw a line under it and try to move on. And it's not nice because you either way you feel terrible. And you think everyone's talking about what cunt you are. It's horrible. So. um yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with him for that. We should just, as a quick postscript, they went to Finland. A lot of players pulled out for various reasons. I got a half-decent nil-nil under Howard Wilkinson. Um, Ray Parler had a goal not given when it went over the line. Um, but ultimately, that draw proof. Was it, was it yeah, late on. Yeah. Actually, he's someone who could have played a bit more under Keegan because he was emerging into a serious player. He was injured for Euro 2000, wasn't he? Well, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, he never played that much, but he came on in the Germany game as well. Um, but then again, where does he play, you know, because he's not going to play in Beckham's position. He was generally at that stage playing more right side than centre, albeit Beckham wanted to play in the middle. But anyway, we'll get off on tangents. Um, <laughs> I, I just, but that was just, it. And it was over after 18 months. Uh, can I just throw in a little bit of personal experience myself? Because I'm not an impetuous person. At least I don't think I am. Um, but in the, the jobs from which I've resigned, not that many, um, I, I have sort of thought about it at the weekend, gone in and handed a letter over and had a discussion on a Monday. Uh, one time I rode the bike home on a Thursday and went in on the Friday morning and say, you know, let's talk about it because I don't think this is working anymore. And so in some senses they are uh, impetuous, but in another sense I've been thinking about it and it had been sort of bubbling away in the subconscious for, for months. And I, I just wonder, you know, if, if we're misreading, if we're misreading it, because sometimes you can say that it's the right thing and you're doing well and you know it, you, it's the right job for you, and then you kind of, in some sense, suddenly walk in and say, um, you know, I, I, I think we should talk about the the best exit strategy here. But it's um, in each instance, it had been there bubbling for a while without necessarily being acknowledged. And I think there's a tipping point in some things in life where where it just comes to it and you think, yes, now is the right time. And it's definitely uh, an emotional as well as intellectual, or it's a it's a it's a matter of feelings as much as it's a matter of weighing up your future and risk and reward and what career opportunities. I think the older I get and I was thinking about this yesterday at work with one of our part-timers left and she's kind of 22 and going off to do a, a master's and things like this and you know if there was one thing I could say to someone it's that 
you know, planning can only get you so far. I think so much in life is about seeing the opportunities and being bold enough to take them. And if Keegan's opportunity at that point was to say, I'm not good enough and I'm going to go and do other things and give a chance to someone who may be good enough, then it was the right thing to do. And you can, you can look back into these things too much. You can, you know, have the people who decide, you know, in, in when they're 10 years old, eaten that they're going to become prime minister. But the vast amount of life are just chances that come your way. And some of them you take and some of them you don't take. And what, what do you make of them? And Keegan took his chance to be England manager. Um, and he made what he did of it. It wasn't an entirely uh, a disaster, but it didn't succeed in the way that he hoped. And um, then he chose to go and do something else. And you know, as someone who's done things like that, obviously at a much lower level with much lower stakes, it would be the height of hypocrisy for me to say, well, he shouldn't have quit with a game in three days' time. Um, maybe, maybe he could have said, look, you know, let's let's plan an exit here rather than simply jump out. But if jumping out was the best for him, then jumping out was the best for him. I don't think we talked in the first part. I think about his face. He was a terrible poker player. Yes, yeah, he was. And I don't think he could have. You know, there was That's uh, most why people, people loved him. Now I think. No, exactly. I think most people could have done that, agreed it behind the scenes, I'll go after Wednesday. I don't think he could have done that even at a press conference, never mind to the yeah. players. I think his face would have betrayed it. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it's difficult. It's like it's not when you have that kind of reaction, and particularly for somebody who's such an optimist. So, therefore, when when that dream is shattered, it's shattered instantly and kind of devastating. Yes. And I right. think that's what happened. Like he went into that game. The interesting thing is it wasn't just a downward curve after Euro 2000 because they played so well away to France. I know it's only a friendly, but they played so well that people were tentatively more optimistic. There were young players starting to be integrated into the team, like Kieran Dyer, Gareth Barry, and players like that. But then it just, the Germany game, you can't underestimate or overestimate how dismal a day that was. Yeah. And also, the, the other thing I think is cruel about Keegan's time is that every good thing eventually was compromised. So the win over Scotland was then compromised by an abysmal second leg defeat. It still went through, but with an asterisk. Two up against Portugal, every kind of fancy of a start of a tournament, lose the game. Even the one big win, beat Germany, was bloody outdone by what followed a few months later. And it's interesting that ultimately the Euro 2000 game was more significant, but the, the symbolism of the Wembley game has endured much more. I don't think people remember the Euro 2000 game at all, but everyone remembers Harmon scoring, Keegan resigning and so on. So even that was stripped away from him, you know. Even that, he couldn't really, not boast, but even take pride in the fact that he was the first England manager to win a competitive game against Germany in 34 years because it all went spectacularly wrong. It was, like simplified, it was almost bounce-back ability in reverse. Um, and yeah, there's a real sadness in that, I think. Yeah, but I, I think it sums up. Oh, just I think it yeah. sums up what is all things considered, and um, with a respectful nod to Sam Allardyce, I do think it's the worst England raid of my lifetime. Worse than Taylor, there were some mitigating circumstances, but I just think there was a, a, at no stage really. Certainly, looking back, and at the time you were you were having to ignore the rational voice to think they were making progress. At no stage, McLaren. Oh God, I'd forgotten about him. Jesus, no. The Wally with um, the brolly, you see. He has I a, genuinely he has a way of remember. Him. He has a way of of being remembered, and Capello with his grim face. And uh, do you know that's and, interesting? And, I'd forgotten yeah. all about McLaren. No, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> he not. Blocked it out. <laughs> you know, I just I just wonder. You know, if you if you're 
doing a kind of after dinner speech or something like this, and you've got a room of of two hundred England fans in a room, and you introduce the speaker as ex England manager Steve McLaren. The reaction you would get might be a few. Ooh, there might be some polite applause and, and so on. If you say ex England manager Kevin Keegan, I reckon we're all on our feet and applauding, regardless yeah, of the true. fact. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of the fact, because we think he's a decent man who did his best and he wasn't good enough. He wasn't an egomaniac. He wasn't someone who grasped grasped at the highest possible prize and then fell I think, short. I, do I don't. I mean, Glenn Hoddle wouldn't get a, a resounding round of applause. I don't think, but a certain Keegan would. Do you not think Keegan had a big ego? I do. I think. I don't. I don't I think to... most people who get to that level have something of an ego. Yes, you believe yeah. you can do it, don't you? But You've it's, got uh, to. I just, yeah. yeah. But I mean, again, I'm not not in a particularly. I don't think the manifestations of that ego were especially bad, but I do think he had a big ego. Most, like I said, most people do. It's interesting. We only hold. We only single out certain people, like Hoddle and Michael Owen, for example, who are seen as being very egotistical. But that, that's another pod. Yeah, it is another pod. So we're probably better off talking just to, to wind up about about legacy, I suppose. You've already talked, Rob, about your position on probably one of the one of the worst. We, we yeah, haven't forgotten that. completely. Forgotten McLaren, but yeah, it's, it's down there. And I suppose what happened next with him really he was at City within a year or a year a year and a bit, and then and well, did yeah. all right there. And I don't go into too much. Did 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 pretty well there. Went back to Newcastle and ended up winning a constructive dismissal claim against that shower. You know, so he's um you know he he, he was. He was not down for too long and came back and achieved some more stuff again. He then, did very well at City. Got promoted, didn't he, with a really exciting team, Benabia and, um, mm. I was going to say Benny U, not Benny U, Berkovic, Jesus Christ. Nah. Um, and then, of course, it went through the usual cycle. You know, very good first season back in the Premier League, beat United in the last game at Main Road. But then it sort of faded, as it always did with Keegan. Um, and that's another topic, I guess. Maybe he was better off at getting out at a certain time that he could only sustain that optimism for a certain period but I think generally his club career was really successful definitely I, I, I would argue strongly with anyone who said otherwise Fulham, Newcastle and City he took them to places they hadn't been for a long time um, well City sort of but you know he took them back and playing a style of football and a, a kind of a fun mood and everything ultimately all three went wrong but you know all political careers ended in failure and all yeah. that then the second Newcastle one is irrelevant, really, because of the circumstances. Yeah. I wouldn't and judge him on that. There's an element of artifice in this distinction, but in terms of English managers, if you empty out the Scottish managers and the and the foreign managers, you know, you look at Keegan's club career, and over the last thirty or forty years, it probably stands comparison to most, especially if you factor in um, the 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 approach that was taken the hope that was given the joy that as i said earlier that was that was created because you know unless you're managing one or two of those elite clubs then you're not going to be winning things so if you're not going to be winning things what do you want to see as a football fan and you know this is what i've felt about everton for the last 15 or so years i want to see young lads being given their opportunity opportunities i want to see us win some of the big games and i want to see us playing football that uh, that that gives us that gives us hope and whether we finish 14th or finish 8th to me no even 4th doesn't matter that much because we're not going to win the bloody champions league <laughs> but i want to i want to see um players get better i want to see uh that vivacity uh that's part of football and if wins come along trophies come along then then great but we're not a we're not a if you don't if you don't manage those really top level elite 
at uh, clubs, you're not in really in much of a project. You're not really in much of a, a, a business of, of building a strategy. You know, um, even when Leicester won, it was kind of a, an alignment of the stars rather than a strategy. So what you want from a manager is, is what Keegan did at a lot of clubs, which was, which was bring the joy. I think that um, in the final analysis, I think he's demonstrably a very good manager and probably an even better man. And I think at the end of all of that, I don't see how many people can keep pointing these kind of look, uh, painting him as a clownish character in some way. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I do think, in hindsight, international football is wrong for him. Both the, the yes. rhythms of it, and also yeah. the, um, the, the the kind of level of tactical sophistication. Uh, particularly around that time, it was just getting a bit more. I think I think it was a level too far in terms of the quality, but also definitely the rhythms of it. It just weren't for him. He was a day to day man. But you're right. I think ultimately he he did really well. I, you know, Newcastle, it's easy to say that they would have won the league if they had a different manager, but I don't think they'd have got as close in the first place. Exactly. I do sometimes wonder if he'd had a, like a Don Howe figure alongside him, how what a difference that might have made. I know he spoke very highly of Arthur Cox and Derek Fazakali. I, I don't know enough about them really, but I know he was annoyed that he couldn't get Cox full-time because of some nonsense mm. over his age. Was he the first Fazakali manager to bring in like a, with. a defensive coordinator, to use American football terminology? Because he brought Lawrence in, didn't he, to work on the defence? Oh, he did. Yeah. I, I don't know. The yeah. one point, it's worth making the point, we made it last week, I think, but it's worth mentioning is that the overall defensive record, Newcastle and with England, was absolutely fine. The problem came when you went to those really big games against the yeah. very best teams. Mm. They would ship... Like in this, you know, they shipped three twice, which yeah. is just too many. Um, yeah. And likewise, Newcastle with a 4-3 and everything. Um, so overall, it wasn't bad at all. But um, yeah, when it really came, there, uh, I just think there wasn't enough substance to go with the kind of the mood of optimism he created. And I think deep down, the England players knew that, that a lot of them were used to working for great managers, uh, people like Julier, or, or very good managers, people like Julier, Ferguson, Wenger, and so on, when it was just a little bit more... And I, I think deep down they knew that something wasn't quite right. Um, and I think that ultimately manifested. But also he was really unlucky. I can't stress this enough with the form of certain players and the fact that, you know, if he got, if, for example, if he had had peak Paul Ince, then that team suddenly looks very different, which I, I love Venables. I think he was a sensational manager, but he was also very lucky to have peak Ince, peak Shearer, peak Adams, peak Seaman. That's a hell of a spine. Um, Keegan had none of them and none of the replacements were quite ready yet either. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair. And you know, spending this sort of four hours that we we have <laughs> <laughs> spent on on Keegan, I have felt my my um, opinion of him shifting a little bit. I, I would always have him down as out of his depth, and uh, I think he was international good as far as he went. But uh, yeah, and I think you're right, Rob. Um, but. You know, now I'm looking at it. You know, who would be in their depth as an England manager? You know, uh, yeah. none of the people slagging him off on social media. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, <enough>. Absolutely, <laughs> they'd, they'd, be, they'd be quitting in the shower after one game. Never mind eighteen yeah. months. And, you know, and and you know, Gareth Southgate's there. He's got to a World Cup semi final, and I'll doff my hat to him for that. But you look at the teams he was playing. They went in the class of Portugal and uh, Romania, even in no, in this just, uh, championship. Despite... So. But yeah, bring me lucky generals, as Napoleon said. Bring me lucky Des- generals. Despite everything, England were one ill-conceived tackle away from reaching the quarterfinals of the Euros yeah. and a very strong Euros as well. So yeah, it is a bit more complicated, I think. Yeah, although we would have got pasted by. Uh, oh, they're a bit stuffed. It was Italy who were a really good side. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, totally. Um, 
and um, yeah, they've been pasted in the last eight. And of course, the big, the biggest social media legacy of Kevin Keegan now, of course, is Galactic Keegan on uh, on Twitter. Has anyone seen that? I've heard of it. It's um, it's it's a stri- it's 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 set in the future, and Kevin Keegan yes, lives in space, <laughs> and he's fighting an alien war. It's written by an NHS nurse from the northeast, oh and, and it's beautifully done. Some of it. But a way it really works with Keegan, because again, everything about him is he's really kind of seeing the best in everything, making really and really earnest about everything, even though it's about these and he makes and he keeps doing these like reflective jokes of what he said to certain players at different times and how he got the wrong end of the stick at all times. And it, it's some it's it's a little bit cruel perhaps because it paints him as being more stupid than he is, you know, more a bit thicker than he actually is. But also, it's really quite warm because it is so earnest, and, and you even like him in this ridiculous parody as well. I don't think a, King was thick at all. I think he was a simple no, man, but not thick. No, no, but you're yeah. right; that's an interesting point. I think there was always an element, certainly towards the end, of like the kid who'd been told Santa and the Tooth Fairy didn't exist and yeah. couldn't handle it. There was an element, and I know that sounds disparaging, and it's not entirely meant that way. I just think he was just a very innocent, immature, yeah. for good and bad, um, manager. I think yeah. my final point is I'm much happier that I have lived through a football world with him. In it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah, he, and, he, and that's he what created, I will remember. He created he was a, he created a unique kind of environment and mood, didn't he? And you're right, he just made the world football world a more interesting place and, and more fun. Last word from you, Gary, before we finish. Well, I, I was going to make that point that uh, as a football fan whose uh, experience of football largely coincides with uh, with Keegan's career from the uh, shirt flinging with Billy Bremner right the way through to what we're talking about now it's been a it's been a better experience being a football fan for for Keegan's presence and obviously I'm saying that as an Everton fan where he's closely associated with uh, with Liverpool so you know if he can reach across the divide like that he is highly caricaturable but I think sometimes the best people are caricaturable because they they have that that earnestness that's so easy to sort of uh, to to lift up and and look under, underneath but um you know Keegan Keegan, as as we've said, is uh, is fully deserving of the upside of of the view that's emerging now as we look back on his career, and perhaps is undeserving of some of the downside. And that will do us. Thank you very much for joining us on this journey. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Lee. I've been Lee. We've been Nesson Dorma. That was Kevin Keegan, England manager, and we will speak to you all soon. Take care. Goodbye.